Hello and welcome to the Henna Hundle Show. I'm your host, Henna Hundle, and the Henna Hundle Show is a syndicated program. Here on the Henna Hundle Show, we feature the world's foremost experts for groundbreaking discussion within their respective fields, spanning medicine, science, technology, business, politics, policy, law, and more. Join me, your host, Henna Hundle, on a mission to unpack and understand how contemporary high-impact issues are being tackled by the world's most influential leaders. For today's interview, I'm happy to be joined by my Harvard colleague, Sai Rajagopal. Sai and I are honored to co-interview Ambassador Anders Nordstrom. Ambassador Nordstrom has a wide range of leadership roles serving in global health. He previously served as the acting Director General of the World Health Organization and has also been appointed as Ambassador for Global Health at the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, as well as the WHO's representative in Sierra Leone. In this interview, Sai and I ask Ambassador Nordstrom for insight on a number of pressing global health challenges, in particular about strategic considerations for Ebola vaccination campaigns in Sierra Leone, as well as the issues associated with implementing travel restrictions in relation to the 2019 novel coronavirus. Please join us now in welcoming to the program, Ambassador Anders Nordstrom. So Ambassador, as the WHO representative to Sierra Leone during the outbreak of Ebola there, you have a good working knowledge of the infrastructure issues in preventing transmission. With the Irvabo vaccine approved for use for Ebola, are you intending on a large-scale vaccination campaign like the one performed in the Democratic Republic of the Congo with 90,000 vaccinations? In your experience, what are the key structural components to consider before implementing these types of vaccination campaigns? Okay, but if I still start a little bit about with the vaccine, because I think that was an interesting development that we saw in Sierra Leone during my time there. I came in the middle of the outbreak. Uh, we didn't have the vaccine at that time. We were still under trial and research in Guinea. And then the results were so good, so they decided that um, one should then start using it under a special protocol. And we had it available then at the very, very end in Sierra Leone as well, which made a huge difference. But the approach, how one used the vaccine, was really then only to ensure that you didn't uh, spread the infections further than second and third generation, meaning that you put a ring around the people that were either infected or have been in contact with people who, are, who are, were infected, so-called ring, ring vaccinations. And that helped a lot. Uh, and that was also really what made a success in Congo uh, in the um, western part, because there was an outbreak actually before in East Congo also in Western Congo, where they used the vaccination very successfully as well to be able to contain the outbreak. What is very different, and then you come into the big scale sort of here in the 90,000 that have been immunized, uh, or even more, uh, is that um, this has been in, in Eastern Congo, this has been a long-going protracted outbreak, a security situation that is totally different than from what we had in Sierra Leone. And because of that, this has taken time. But this time they have had the, the vaccine, uh, which has really helped to limit the spread of the infection. But because of the time it has taken, so many people have then have had a chance to be vaccinated. But your question is whether one would do large scale immunization campaigns. And the most important question is here, 
should one use the vaccine in as a preventive measure to ensure that the populations are covered by and having been vaccinated before you even have an outbreak? Or do you only use it as a tool when you have an outbreak to limit the impact or the consequences or the magnitude of the outbreak? Mm-hmm. And that questions we don't have an answer yet, because this is for the WHO scientific committee to answer that question. I would imagine that initially they were thinking of only using it in a situation where you have an outbreak to contain it. I think with the experience now from East Congo, it might be that they will recommend that for certain populations in certain areas, it might be wise actually to use this or use it also as a preventive measure um, Mm -hmm. to have larger groups of populations. But that's not clear yet. We don't know that yet. But it's an important new tool that we have now to be able to contain um, Ebola outbreak. Hello, Ambassador. So my question for you is, in countries such as the DRC and Sierra Leone, who have low democracy indices, how do you propose to build lasting public health infrastructure, which outlasts the government in power and allows for rapid deployment of international healthcare workers, vaccines, and funding? So a long-term investment that is not just valued by governments for short-term political points, but will really engage with the populace. And so... On that, how do you plan to build trust within local communities? Yeah, I think you need, regardless of governments, you need always to work with governments. And there's always opportunities to work with governments, even if the overall political leadership is not supportive, quote unquote. um, You can still work with other people in the ministry, in the government. And I think that one should never disregard that as an important part of an international engagement that needs to be there. Having said that, in countries where both um, systems that might not be working so well and you might also have high level of corruption and you might also, more importantly, have low level of capacities, really to work with local communities is possibly most important because the more you can engage people and increase people's both knowledge, but this is something that people can have access to and that this makes a difference. So to work with communities, and it does not necessarily need to be on health issues, but you can have village communities, you can have school groups, young people's groups that are engaging on broader development issues and ensuring that they also understand and see the importance of health. The best way of doing that is, in most cases, then through civil society organizations, because civil society organizations are on the ground and they are much more proactively engaging with uh, the community groups. Uh, but I would say that that's, a, that's an important strategy to try to invest in civil society, investing in community structures. The second one is complementary to that and complementary to still working with the government is also to invest in human resources, health workers. Because what you have also in those countries is that you often have either an absolute lack of health workers or you have health workers that do not have the right competence. Sometimes, like in Sierra Leone, we have a lot of people with very low level of competence. So to invest and upgrade people's competence is always a very good investment. And that you can do in terms of basic training, but also adding on specific training when it comes to like surveillance or management or um, that kind of thing. The WHO during the Ebola outbreak from 2013 to 2016 strongly advised against implementing travel restrictions. For one reason, they can have a marginalizing or minoritizing effect on already vulnerable populations. 
In the case of the 2019 novel coronavirus, as travel restrictions are increasing, what are your recommendations on preparing West Africa for possible transmission of the virus? And do you condone the travel restrictions that are currently in place? To start with, it's not just for the reason you said why we shouldn't have travel restrictions. Uh, the more important reason is that we have no, no proof that travel restrictions is actually containing or stopping an outbreak. So mm -hmm. just as a measure to contain and to limit the spread, there, 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 are, there is no evidence that travel restrictions will actually help us there. Uh, so, contrary, I think what we see today is that we see uh, some health impact of this outbreak of, uh, of the coronavirus, but what we see much, much more is than anxiety in society. We see severe economic impact today. So the impact we see because of this outbreak of the coronavirus is much, much less of a health impact. So, I mean, you have right now some 80,000 people infected. You have some 3,000 people who have died from a disease caused by a virus. That is not very dangerous. This is possibly less dangerous than normal seasonal influenza. Seasonal influenza in, in the U.S. just last year uh, infected 46 million people. It killed across the whole world 500,000 people, basically the same kind of group that are um, elderly or vulnerable for other reasons. Uh, what we are dealing with now, as far as we know right now, and that's the big issue, uh, is nothing really serious from a health perspective. But what it has caused is something extremely serious, and that is partly linked also to the travel restriction, that the world is reacting in a way that the world has basically never reacted before because of people's anxiety, because we have more not yet access to knowledge, that we have a lot of wrong knowledge floating around, uh, and people are then reacting, and I would say overreacting, both individuals, but also sometimes governments and also um, the economic, uh, the, the private sector and, and business. So, I mean, what you see today is not a rational behavior. It's much more of this, there is a psychology behind here, which I find very interesting, because one could think that with more information, more transparency that we have today, what is happening in China, what is happening in other countries, we have got the facts. Then people shouldn't react as they have done, but they have. So there is psychology in this that goes much, much beyond what are sort of the real medical evidence in terms of what kind of threats or crisis this is. Finally, we wanted to ask you a question, Ambassador, about expanding the topic of focus for healthcare interventions in the developing world. It seems true that there's often a tug to marshal all of our resources towards tackling acute health issues such as malaria and HIV AIDS, but we're seeing in, in developing countries an increasing need to actually address chronic health issues. For example, a nation like Afghanistan um, that global health work often targets for the drug crisis or polio interventions is showing increasing rates of diabetes. In your view, what are some potential avenues to encourage government investment into the global south towards chronic healthcare issues like diabetes, like heart disease, and not only the acute health issues like malaria and HIV? I think it's extremely good that you raised that point, because I think the first thing we need to do is to ensure that people know the facts. Uh, people do not think that still uh, that the so-called NCDs is something that is affecting also the 
the the uh, uh, less well economy, uh, less well uh, developed parts of the world, the low income countries or poor people, uh, which is not true. Uh, and people do not have the right knowledge about the magnitude of this. Mm-hmm. Just to give a couple of big area that has really mobilized the world. And we have 15 years ago when we created the Global Fund and roughly 6 million people were dying from those diseases. Today it's less than 3 million. So huge progress. So less than 3 million compared to the NCDs. There are about 40 million people dying from NCDs in the world. Uh, 15 million of those are dying before the age of 70, meaning premature mortality, meaning what people should not they should not die from those. Out of those 15 million, 85% are in low and middle income countries. Same countries on HTB and malaria, meaning that you have about three times as many people dying in the same countries as from HTB and malaria. Still, this is not yet a global health issue in my community. Uh, because this is still, people are associated with this, that this has something to do with being rich, being wealthy. This has something to do with that you it's just because your your own behavior, uh, and because of that, we are not going to care about it. And so we have a huge challenge, I think, start with just to communicate to say that it's actually structural issues that lies behind here by poor people. If you take Sweden, the U.S., South Africa, uh, just look around you. It's not the higher socioeconomic group that are mainly at risk and are mainly affected by those diseases is the opposite. It's really poverty-related issues, diseases. Mm-hmm. So what yes. I think what is the most important thing here when it comes to actually advising what to do is to look for how we can prevent. And mm-hmm. we know exactly what the risk factors are. They are they are simple. It's smoking, it's too much alcohol, it's too little physical activity, it's the wrong food. And none of those are classical sort of health sector interventions. On tobacco, we have made quite good progress in the world. Alcohol, less, but still, it's quite a straightforward agenda. When it comes to food, that's the most difficult one. And food is roughly the reason behind a third of this burden of disease when it comes to entities. So that is one of the biggest, biggest challenges right now to see how can we enable people to have access and basically make better choices when it comes to what they are eating. Um, so a lot needs to be invested in moving beyond classical health service sector thinking, the medical thinking, and to see that what is really needed is more opportunities for physical activities, access to better food, and understanding what is really enabling people to have access then to those kind of things. Mm-hmm. The actual on the other aspect, when people are really affected by those diseases, I think the new, new UHC agenda provides an opportunity. So it's not creating new avenues, but rather to try to take an integrated approach to um, provide integrated health services. So HIV AIDS is a chronic disease. Diabetes is a chronic disease. You need to have a health system based on primary health care, where people have access also to treatment, for chronic diseases so that they can live healthy lives but still with a chronic disease. But the most important thing here is to try to begin to get people to focus on what we can do to prevent. And a lot of that doesn't cost any money. And that was an interview with Ambassador Anders Nordstrom, the former acting director general of the World Health Organization. 
the ambassador for global health at the Swedish Ministry for Foreign Affairs, as well as the WHO's representative in Sierra Leone. On behalf of Sai and myself, we hope you enjoyed and learned something from our conversation with Ambassador Nordstrom about strategies for implementing large-scale vaccination campaigns, about investing in interventions that address chronic health issues in the global south, as well as building public health infrastructure that promotes trust within local communities. You have been listening to The Henna Hundel Show. I'm your host, Henna Hundel, and I thank you for tuning in. We'll catch you next week.